As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what, there's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I celebrate Record Store Day by talking with independent record store owners from around the country. Plus, we'll review the new albums from the freaky indie folk rocker Bat for Lashes and suburban rapper Asher Roth. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. You're trying hard not to show it, but baby, baby, I know it, you lost and love and feeling, oh, that love and feeling, you lost and love. Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Lovin' Feelin', one of dozens and dozens of hits, most from the early 60s, crafted by the great record producer Phil Spector. Spector recently was found guilty of murder in his second go-round before the courts for a shooting incident of an actress, 40-year-old actress, Lana Clarkson. Greg Spector will forever go down in rock history as one of the greatest producers ever working with this music for that incredible wall of sound. Mm -hmm. Orchestra's worth of musicians. Was it enough to have one bass player? You had to have three string sections and horns and incredible hits crafted for the likes of the Renettes, Darlene Love, the greatest Christmas album ever, Phil Spector's Christmas record. Later worked with people like John Lennon and the Ramones. And when he would work with those folks, he was infamous for waving a gun around. I think it was treated as an eccentricity for a long time. Mm -hmm. This old, weird dude who had uh, an inordinate fondness for for firearms. But something went very, very wrong in February 2003 when Spectre brought this woman who had been an actress, uh, you know, struggling to make it in Hollywood, back to his mansion. She She was working at the time as a hostess at a nightclub and suddenly came out and said to the limo driver, I think I've killed someone. He pled not guilty, but he was 
found uh, – well, they couldn't come to a decision in 2007 when the first jury deadlocked 10 to 2. The second time, after 30 hours in deliberating, this jury found him guilty. Now he's 69 years old. He's a rock legend. He is facing 18 years to life in prison. Just a horrible, sad ending to an incredible career. Absolutely. Il y a des rues dangereuses Dans ma jeunesse Il y a des villes morosses Des fugues au creux De la nuit silencieuse Dans ma jeunesse Quand tombe le soir On sait la course à tous les espoirs Je danse toute seule Devant mon miroir Jim, big news in the world of Internet piracy out of France. We've been tracking this story since last fall when it became an issue. The infamous three strikes and you're out law that was being championed by the French president, Nicolas Sarkozy. Basically, what it meant was that Internet file sharing was going to be cracked down upon with the aid of the French government. A big step in getting the government involved in the music industry's problem with file sharing. So what the French government was proposing was that any time somebody shared files on the Internet, they would be warned two times by their Internet service provider, and the third time they would be disconnected from the Internet. Well, that law was recently turned down by the French Parliament. A small number of legislators vote actually voted on it, turned it down. There is some talk that the bill will be rewritten and resubmitted to the French Parliament for a vote. But for now, a major blow against the music industry's efforts to crack down on Internet file sharing. This is the new terrain here in terms of this battle. Will the government be more involved in the music industry's efforts to crack down on file sharing? It's interesting to note, Greg, that in this battle in France, it was the Socialist Party that defeated this three strikes proposal. Here, many on the right are accusing President Obama of being a socialist. Well, he's got the exact opposite position in terms of copyright in in America. We just saw the first serious act by the Obama administration giving us a hint of where it will stand on copyright issues. The Justice Department, representing legally the opinion of the United States of America, wrote to the courts in Massachusetts and sided with the RIAA, the Record Industry Lobbying Group, in its pursuit of a young kid who who had downloaded a lot of music when he was 17. He's now in college. And the the U.S. government said that fines of $150,000 per downloaded Mm -hmm. track were not unreasonable. That's a little frightening. Even more frightening is that the second and third most powerful positions in the Department of Justice, Associate Attorney General and Associate Deputy Attorney General, have just gone to two fellows, Tom Pirelli and Don Verrilli, who have worked for the RIAA Mm -hmm. and have tracked down, in some cases, dozens of these uh, kids and, and people who've downloaded music. These guys were out there persecuting illegal downloaders. It was what they call them, people who were file sharing mm-hmm. is what kinder people call them. Boy, it sure seems like the Obama administration is going to make it hard for people who download music. That is Prince, a man who apparently doesn't realize that we're in the midst of a uh, recession, Jim. (laughs) His uh, latest release is called Opus. He's charging fans $2,100 per copy. He's issued only 950 copies of this Opus leather-bound 
case that contains 280 pages of photographs and images on silk paper. It weighs, get this, 37 pounds. <laughs> Embedded inside it, Jim, is a an iPod that contains a 40-minute movie plus 15 bonus audio tracks covering basically his 2007 21-night stand in London, a souvenir to end all souvenirs for that epic stand in London. He's part of a growing trend. Major artists with devoted cult followings are putting out very expensive limited edition box sets that are selling out. I mean, look at uh, Nine Inch Nails. Trent Reznor talked about this idea of scarce goods and having a real market value. He proved it when he put out his Ghosts box set, put it out in a limited edition worth 300 bucks. It sold out 2,500 copies in a day. That's a cool $750,000 in Trent Reznor's pocket through his website. Radiohead did the same thing with the In Rainbows set when it came out with its digital downloads in 2007. It created a 100,000 copy limited edition box set version, sold out. Those 100,000 copies at 81 bucks a pop, do the math on that, that's $8 million, most of which went straight to Radiohead. Pearl Jam just now coming out with a re-release of its 10 debut album. There are four different versions that they've released it in, including a box set containing two CDs, a DVD, four LPs, and a cassette, of all <laughs> things, uh, of an original demo. That's retailing for upwards of 200 bucks. And, you know, the track record is showing that fans want this sort of stuff, this collectible stuff, these artifacts, things that they can hold, and are creating a new market for the record stores that we're going to be talking about later on in the show. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and uh, if you've ever listened to this show, you know that Jim and I have spent a lot of time inside independent record stores buying lots of music. There's a lot of talk recently that the independent record store is going away. More than 7,000 independent record stores in America in the early 90s, now fewer than 2,000, taking heavy hits from the fact that consumers are going increasingly to the Internet to download their music, share their music, or buy their music from Internet record stores. But... In the last couple of years, there's been a renaissance in those brick-and-mortar mom-and-pop stores and a return to just the allure and the romanticism of physical product. The vinyl album sales have increased 89% in the last year alone. Uh, We just talked about these custom-made box sets that are coming out and people flocking to buy them. For Record Store Day, the second annual Record Store Day, with 1,000 record stores around the world participating, there are over 100 pieces of custom-made product being made available that can only be had at independent record stores. We talked to three representatives from three of the best independent record stores in America recently on Sound Opinions to get their take on why the independent record store is coming back in a big way. All right, Greg, we have a heck of a panel to talk about uh, Record Store Day, which really should be every day (laughs) in America. Sitting with us here in Chicago is Matt Jensik, who is the head buyer for the three Reckless Record Stores in Chicago. Hey, Matt. How's it going, guys? Thanks for having me. You bet. Out in uh, in Los Angeles, we have Mark Weinstein. Amoeba has three locations, Berkeley, San Francisco, and that amazing place in, in Los Angeles. Hey, Mark. Hi, how's it going, guys? And uh, Austin, Texas, where Greg Cott and I just dumped a bundle each on our annual trip to Waterloo Records <laughs> in the midst of South by Southwest. We have uh, John Kuntz, the uh, owner and uh, president of uh, Waterloo since 82. Hey, John. Hi, Greg. Hi, Jim. 
Fellas, to get this rolling, why don't you tell us a little bit about what, if anything, uh, you guys are doing for Record Store Day, part of this national recognition of our fine independent retailers. John, uh, is there anything going on in Austin on Record Store Day? Yeah, we've got a couple of uh, cool things slated in Austin. We've got a listening party that's going to be happening at 11 o'clock on, on Saturday, the 18th, for the upcoming Bob Dylan CD. We're going to mm. be pre-selling that, and we've got some cool lithographs for folks that, that take advantage of that. But the, uh, the big thing um, is we're going to have an in-store performance at 5 o'clock with uh, Mark Olson and Gary Loris from the Jayhawks. And then we're going to have a, a big uh, tent sale outside with uh, a bunch of cool vinyl and CDs and so forth as well. So lots of cool things, lots of wonderful value adds. It's, it's kind of a, a music geek's heaven. Yeah, there's uh, supposedly like 100 pieces of uh, specially made merchandise, including CDs, obviously, and vinyl albums and singles and T-shirts, especially created by artists for Record Store Day. So it, it, it's that's got to be pretty gratifying to have that sort of stuff, right, Mark? I mean, uh, the fact that uh, artists care enough to make something especially for independent record stores on, on Record Store Day? Absolutely, and I'm sure there'll be a cumulative effect uh, if this event uh, continues over the years because... Uh, I mean, last year we got so many great just quotes from so many amazing artists about the record store experience and how much it's meant to them. This roster of vinyl that's coming out, especially for this, uh, is going to be uh, really exciting. There's all kinds of really great stuff. But I'm sure over the years uh, we're going to conjure up uh, many more exciting ways uh, to make that a great day for uh, all our favorite record store geeks out there. <laughs> Matt, what are the reckless stores in Chicago doing? Well, um, similar to the other stores, uh, to Waterloo, we have some in-store performances that day. Um, mostly local stuff. There's a band called Disappears that's kind of an up-and-coming, like, garagey sort of rock band, and they're playing. And uh, I, I sort of want it to seem like it's kind of just crazy. Like, I just yeah. want it to feel very, like, I'm never going to forget uh, the first in-store I saw at uh, at Reckless on Broadway. Stereo Lab had literally just gotten off the plane the oh, first yeah. time they came <laughs> to America, and they came and did an in-store there with with all of their gear. Yeah, that's you know, incredible. Which is when they were like <laughs> seven pieces, and they had the Moogs, and they didn't know if right. the converters were going to work for the currency. All right, but I want to ask you guys, let, let's uh, – enough love. Um, does it bother any of you three that we have to have a record store day? You guys have your hearts and souls and lifeblood in the business of selling music. Many of us would never have discovered great music without places like yours. Mark, I bet I bet it gets under your skin, Mark. A little well, bit. Well, it does to a certain extent. Absolutely. Uh, every day is record store day in our world, so it's sort of uh, kind of a funny idea. But to an extent, it's just a promotional tool to remind uh Record stores really don't get enough notice or attention for the parts they play, I think, in the community from the media. And uh, there's a lot more of that that could happen to keep us more integrally involved in people's kind of perspective on the subject of music and uh, community. Well, we are talking about a time when record stores not only aren't being appreciated, but are literally uh, being attacked. Um, John, does it bother you as a retailer in Austin when the Eagles only sell their new music through a giant box retailer? Now, I mean, you know, you've been selling Eagles records for years, keeping those guys. Those Springsteen and, records. And Springsteen records, right. keeping those Prince. guys in, in hookers. Prince this week. Right. Yeah, right, you know. I mean, that's got to hurt. Mm -hmm. It definitely hurts. I mean, so many of these artists, they got their leg up originally from 
a lot of the, uh, well, there's so many traditional things that are being challenged right now. Newspapers, guys, radio, yeah. television. Yeah. You know, every everything has uh, been challenged by the huge advances that the Internet's made. And uh, so many of the artists that you mentioned, without those traditional ways of getting noticed, never would have gotten the, the notoriety mm-hmm. and the fame and uh, artistry that they've been able to achieve. And it hurts. I mean, that there's there's no denying it. It's uh, it's pretty crazy that someone thinks, oh, I can grab the bucks that Target or Walmart or Best Buy wants to throw my way. And it's kind of a, you know, I think it's more a slap in the face to the fans than to anybody else. It's it's saying, I want to you to buy my new release, but I want you to shop where I tell you to shop. Are you able to communicate that to the distributor or the label or the management that you are indeed mightily ticked off by this? Uh, how do you respond to something like that when you hear when the news comes across? It's um, one of the things that that uh, we did at the Coalition of Independent Music Stores, which I I helped found. We said, you know, all these exclusives were we, we kept trying to fight them, and it was a losing battle. The labels would always say, it's not us, it's the artist management, or it's the artist themselves, or whatever. They've, they've got the right and the ability to do this. So we started going after and uh, doing and creating our own exclusives and then put together a, a, a distribution company to get those out to independent record stores all across the country. There's you know hundreds of titles that um, are now available exclusively at independent record stores. Matt, what's your take? Yeah, being being a musician myself, I um, I maybe I'm being a bit naive, but I, I find it sort of hard to believe that a lot of the artists would make this choice. I mean, one of the the ones that bothered us at Reckless was the ACDC release that was sold mm-hmm. only at Walmart stores, I believe it was. A lot of us at the store, it's like one of our favorite bands of our whole lives. You know, like we grew up listening to ACDC and still love them, and and it really kind of I would say it wasn't even the the business end of it. It was almost like a personal thing. It was kind of weird. Like, but I I don't know. I guess maybe deep down in my heart, I I hope that ACDC didn't make that choice. It's kind of a I think a classic cycle set up by the big businesses that run uh, the labels and the management. I mean, really, it's a sort of a self fulfilling prophecy. By the time Prince has done what he did recently, there really aren't that many distribution points for music and. On paper, it just looks like the only way to really get your record out there in a big way is to deal with these big box retailers. Whether that perception is right or not, that's another conversation. But the fact is, there's so few outlets nowadays that the perception by the big labels is the only way to really get it out there is to make these kind of deals. It's really pathetic, but somewhat true. going to continue our record store panel after a short break on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, Jim and I will review new albums from Bat for Lashes and Asher Roth.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're celebrating National Record Store Day, which is April 18th, by talking to three representatives from independent record stores around the country. We're joined by Matt Jensik, the head buyer at Reckless Records in Chicago, Mark Weinstein, the co-founder of Amoeba Music in California, and John Kunz, the owner and president of Waterloo Records in Austin, Texas. You know, when you talk about the record industry, you hear a lot of dire news about where the record store is going. But uh, when it comes to vinyl sales, there's been a huge resurgence in recent years. Uh, Sales were up 90% last year alone. In the overall scheme of things, that's just a small blip, but I wanted to get a sense from our guests as to how that affected their businesses. I started by asking Matt Jensik from Reckless Records in Chicago if people are, in fact, buying more vinyl at his stores. They are buying the vinyl, and it it is really helping us. I mean, a couple years ago when this thing started, I don't know if any of us at the store really knew, you know, if it was going to last or, you know. I mean, most of the people who work at the store have been buying vinyl the whole time. I mean, that's what I try to tell people. Like, this has never stopped. I mean, we've been selling vinyl the whole time. It's just that now we're getting kids who are coming in, and it's pretty clear that these are the first records that they've ever purchased. And... They're buying Fleetwood Mac's rumors or Dylan records that are all scratched up or Beatles records that are damaged. They don't care. Like the, the point is, is they're getting the music and, and they're, they're experiencing it in a way. I, I think it's sort of like a, a bizarre like form of nostalgia where it's like something they've never truly experienced, but they know that it's something that their parents grew up with and they sort of like want to connect with that generation. And I think it makes a lot of sense. Like it's a phys- it's a much more physical process. You can. You can see the needle touching the record, and all of us who who like records and grew up with them, you know, we all know what it is. It's a physical thing, and it's exciting to witness. When because I'm telling you, I have literally seen the birth of a vinyl collector. I've witnessed it a couple different <laughs> yeah. times, where you can tell they have no idea what they're doing. They have never bought a record before. They like touch it in weird ways, where you know, like as someone who's grown up with records, you don't touch. You know, you don't put your fingerprints on it. You don't like whatever, and they don't care because they, they don't know. But like, it's it's really cool, and it's very much helping our business. Mark, what about this idea of vinyl? Right now, it is surging remarkably. Do you see it having any staying power in terms of making a serious dent in how music is is bought and sold and distributed in the next few years? And if not, what will eventually replace the CD in terms of people coming into your stores and, and, and buying physical product? What do you, where do you think we're going? Well, I think there will be a, a mystique for each of the different formats depending on, you know, there's a crowd for all of that stuff. I think vinyl will do very well for some years to come. It's, it's obviously uh, the best kind of print to buy if you're really into an artist buying a vinyl record and all the artwork it's absolutely the best print you can buy i think the magic of analog is just occurring to a whole new generation of people who as they get more and more into it are probably going to find it satisfying on all kinds of levels buying an mp3 is kind of like buying a postcard of a picasso painting as compared to buying a really fine print that looks like the original there's really a huge difference whether in fact that will matter to the market as a whole it remains a question, but I, I really think that people who are really have a relationship with an artist that's that deep are going to want to go after the best possible copy. Therefore, I do believe 
CDs will last for a while m- longer because they do represent a much better and harder copy than obviously a file that's in your computer. I, I, I find it a little bit hard to comprehend what it's like to be a young person today with so much media coming your way as compared to when we grew up. And uh, we would go to our record store and listen to some records and save up our money for a new release day and all kinds of... The relationship we would have with a record when we bought it in the 70s was such that we would go home, we would stare at it for a whole weekend and listen to it about 50 times and really have a relationship with that record and that artist. Whether, in fact, uh, a lot of young people are going to go be able to establish that kind of connection with an artist in the modern age remains somewhat of a question, I think. John, are you buying this notion when we were, uh, Greg and I were down in your fair city, and we did stop by Waterloo uh, for our annual trek, but in the midst of South by Southwest, I must have heard ten times, there are going to be no CDs in five years. Are you gearing up for that day? I don't think anyone's got that uh, crystal ball, you know, completely wired, but the the timeline for, you know, when digital was going to surpass CDs it's moved around a bunch, and it seems like it's, again, getting shorter. But, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, we put together a digital download website. So we look to be launching that in May. And um, it's going to launch with about 40 to 50 independent record stores. And they'll all have a vehicle where someone can go online through their store. And through this, this consolidated site called thinkindy.com, We'll be able to buy individual tracks, buy digital download albums, etc. The majors have been um, difficult to deal with, to say the least. They are much more willing to deal with a telephone company or a computer maker than they are with people that have been sending them checks every month for the last 30 or 40 years. <laughs> but um, I think that they're eventually going to figure out that our success is uh, critical to their success. At least I hope they figure that out. We're talking to Matt Jensik from Reckless Records in Chicago, Mark Weinstein from Amoeba Music in Los Angeles in the Bay Area in California, and John Kunz from Waterloo Records in Austin, Texas. Um, Matt, speak to this whole idea of, uh, you know, I think we all grew up in an era where you would literally spend hours at a record store browsing and looking for stuff. And there are still surveys that, that say that 50% of purchases made at record stores are impulse buys. What are your eyes and ears telling you about the people stopping into reckless stores in Chicago? How do they behave and what are they buying? Well, I I do think that being able to download stuff has changed things. I, I think it's even changed someone who grew up going to record stores and taking chances on records. It's even changed my perspective. I mean, I'm a little bit more likely to go online maybe now and, and check something out first and see if I like it or not. You know, maybe like 10 years ago, I would just go in the store and just buy it. But the thing is, for me, is I'm still a music fan, and I'm still excited about it and still very voracious. Me listening to it online isn't going to stop me from buying it if I like it. So it's, in a way, I see it as a tool that's helpful. And I think the thing is with the record store and what you guys were talking about with the community before is that, you know, we still get people just coming in the store just, like, asking us questions, like, what's good? They expect us as employees at the store to know what we're talking about, to, to be informed, and we have listening stations that have employee picks, and the stuff that we put in there like almost always sells much better than it did before it was in there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an example of where you still get that community aspect where people trust you as, as the clerk or, or whatever you want to call it. 
they know that you've given your life to work in there and, and that you care about it, and they still want to come in there and talk to you about it and hear what you have to say. Yeah, it's a sort of a curator role. Um, I know, John, that at Waterloo, I, I bought a lot of records there just based on your employee write-ups. That that employee back wall is, um, you know, something that's, that's one of the most traveled sections of the store. The record store, I think, is the town square for each community as far as music lovers are concerned and music makers. Would any of you guys, however, be able to stay in business, stay open? Let, let's start with you, Mark, at Amoeba. That, that Los Angeles store is huge, hmm. humongous. Mm-hmm. If you were just selling vinyl and, mm-hmm. and posters and the books and stuff that you have, would you be in business? Could you maintain a store that big? Well, that's hard to say. One way or another, I think we would find a way. But, uh, I mean, today at that store, we sell between fifteen and 1,800 pieces of vinyl every day. That is 12-inch vinyl, not including 45s, mm. which is a huge number. It certainly amounts to uh, would amount to a pretty significant amount of sales on a daily basis if that's what, all we were able to do. But it certainly wouldn't be able to maintain. Uh, the staff there is uh, well over 250 people, and uh, I don't know that I'd be able to carry such a large staff. But I, I do feel that, uh, you know, it's going to get more and more uh, interesting. I'm, so much of this is really all about people's reaction to uh, what big business has done to the music business. And that seems like a it's really kind of a central issue and theme that has to do with a lot of the things we're discussing. Really, it's a classic example of the quarterly profit motive completely ruining everything, and, as it has done in many other businesses. And uh, when it comes to music, the product is so personal and so wonderful. It's such a strange fact that people's tastes have been so manipulated over the years in such a way that by the just before the Internet era really hit, I mean, the labels had sort of gotten it to a point where they figured out how to get people to basically only be interested in one kind of music and a very few art number of artists. Really, all of us have been all about trying to keep music from being controlled by big business. You know, we do everything we can on a daily basis to make people realize how much more there is to the experience, but uh, we're up against, you know, these giant entities, so it's an interesting time, definitely. We've been talking to record store guys Matt Jensik from Reckless Records in Chicago, Mark Weinstein from Amoeba Music in Los Angeles and the Bay Area, and John Kunz from Waterloo Records in Austin, Texas. Gentlemen, thanks so much for coming on Sound Opinions. Thank you, Jim. Thanks a lot, Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Greg. You're listening to Sound Opinions. We've been marking Record Store Day, April 18th, with a discussion about the state of the independent record store industry and just the value of of what it means to support that mom-and-pop music store. And as I said at the top, Jim, you know, you and I basically grew up in these places. I mean, they are an essential part of who we are. I can't imagine what my childhood would have been like without them. I know that's the same with you. Absolutely, Greg. We thought we would each play a song that is important to us uh, and talk a little bit about a record store that was important to us. My life would not be what it is today without a place in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, called Pier Platters Mm -hmm. Records on Newark Street. 
I discovered it in the uh, the early 80s when I was a kid in high school. I was first getting my driver's license. I'd drive down from Jersey City to Hoboken. In my memory, it is uh, always empty. It's always Friday afternoon. And Bill Ryan, the balding, older, crotchety, grouchiest man in New Jersey, was smoking <laughs> behind the counter. Once you got to know Bill, he was not, in fact, a grouch. He was the nicest man in the world. But he had this mumbling, growling way of speaking. I think after I went in there the first couple of times and saw the brand new release stack of the debut albums by the Smiths and the Violent Femmes and R.E.M. and bought those records, Bill figured I was a kid who might have some taste. And he would begin in this empty store to say to me, you ever hear the soft boys? And he'd put the needle down yeah. and out would come, I want to destroy you, the opening track of Underwater Moonlight by the Soft Boys. And I'd be like, I'll buy it, I'll buy it, I'll buy it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Bill saw in me. It certainly wasn't just the fact that I would spend most of my paycheck at his store. But I began writing for a fanzine called Jersey Beat, which he sold. They sold all the fanzines and all the vinyl albums that were coming out from the major labels and all of the local self-released albums and 45s from up-and-coming bands in the Mm -hmm. neighborhood, like Sonic Youth. And I'd buy it all. And he, he saw that I was writing, and he said one day, I'll write for this uh, Hoboken reporter. They need a they need a music column. And uh, Bill hooked me up with one of the editors of the Hoboken Reporter. I began writing about music. And, y- you know, my entire worldview and, and aesthetic and really my career starts with Bill Ryan in Hoboken at Pier Platters, eventually displaced by gentrification. In my memory, though, it looms large. And Bill Ryan, the the heart and soul of that store, looms large. I'm here today because of him. This song is a single by a band from Hoboken in the early 80s. Uh, They were called the Cyclones. Long forgotten. It's a great song, though. It's called You're So Cool. Bill Ryan, this is for you. You're So Cool by the Cyclones.
You're So Cool by the Cyclones, uh, Jim DeRigatis' memory of a great record store, Pier Platters in, in Jersey. My record store memories go back to my early days in Chicago when it was really difficult to get music from overseas. And the one conduit for that kind of music was Wax Tracks Records on Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. It was not only a place where you got all the coolest imports before anybody else, but also were able to hear this music and buy it in many cases from a lot of guys in bands that would go on to be quite famous. I remember buying more than a few records from Al Jorgensen of Ministry at Wax Tracks. Wax Tracks, of course, went on to be a record label and a genre starter. I mean, the whole idea of this industrial disco sound spawned out of Chicago in those early days. You would meet the members of Naked Raygun and the Effigies there, and they would tell you about their gig down the street. You would find out about these bands like Joy Division. Who the heck was that? And all of a sudden, the poster would go up on the window. Joy Division coming for first U.S. tour. Then it would go down. Joy Division was no more. The lead singer hung himself. But there's this other band, New Order, that's coming to take their place. You heard their music for the first time in that store. I'll never forget the first time being at Wax Tracks and hearing this song by New Order. It's called Temptation, and it was one of those moments where I've got to have that music. Mm -hmm. I bought it in every incarnation. I bought the 7-inch. I bought the 12-inch. I bought the record when it came out. Spent a lot of money in that place, and I loved every minute of it. It's Temptation by New Order on Sound Opinions. Temptation by New Order on Sound Opinions, Greg Cott's pick. The kind of experiences we described, Greg, you cannot have on iTunes or yeah. Amazon. To share your record store memories or to comment on anything we talk about on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800, or email interact at soundopinions.org. Greg and I will be back on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of albums by indie rocker Bat for Lashes and the up-and-coming rapper Asher Roth.
Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called Glass that opens the second album by Bat for Lashes. The record's called Two Sons. Bat for Lashes is actually an artist named Natasha Khan, who was raised by a Pakistani father and an English mother in Brighton in the UK. Made a lot of noise in 2006 with her debut record, Fur and Gold, which was nominated for the Album of the Year in the UK's prestigious Mercury Prize, and which prompted Radiohead to invite her to open for them on tour. The buzz has been building in the States ever since, with lots of rock critics here rushing to crown her the minimalist, Steve Reich-inspired heir to Kate Bush, Bjork, and Tori Amos. Actually, I think that misses the mark a little bit. I would invoke the uh, Celtic enchantress Lorena McKennett and the uh, indie rocker uh, Mary Timoney because Mm -hmm. there is this witchy, dark, mysterious, enchanting, magical vibe. Kind of renaissance fair in a lot of ways. (laughs) This is a concept album, uh, according to Khan. Half of it about her own, quote, desert-born spiritual self and the other half about her, quote, destructive, self-absorbed, blonde, femme fatale, alter ego named Pearl. Heavy stuff. What do we think of the music? We'll come back in a second and review it on our Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale. But here is a song called Daniel from Bat for Lashes on Sound Opinions. Thank you. 
Back for Lashes with a track called Daniel from her new album, Two Sons. Jim, as you said, there's this uh, heavy psychological subtext to this. I can't wait for the master's thesis about this uh, <laughs> dichotomy of the female persona that she's getting into. The way I look at it, she's got this character called Pearl. That's her answer to Beyonce's Sasha Fierce. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, there's two sides to my persona here. And she actually, the, the, the songs that Pearl gets are, are by far more interesting as far as I'm concerned. A little bit more uh, going on there in terms of just the turmoil. I like it when she gets feisty. She's got an interesting approach to percussion. I think when, when that percussion is sort of grounded in, in a more earthy, walloping context as opposed to that ethereal stuff that sometimes tends to let these tracks get a little too misty and mystical, really interesting music. I think to non-fans, I, I think they're probably going to allow this record to sort of wash over them because the melodies and the hooks aren't nearly as insistent as they were on her first record, Fur and Gold. But I think to somebody who's paying attention, you know, slap on the headphones. I know it's a cliche, but this record is deep, multidimensional. She's a visual artist, and I think in terms of the way she thinks about space and depth of field, you can hear that visual arts training in the way she's making this record. A lot of interesting stuff going on musically, just not heavily melodic. And I love that last track. She ends the album with yeah. uh, a song called The Big Sleep. It's a duet with the king of baritone heartache, Scott Walker. It's a great duet. It's just uh, those two voices and piano, and it ends the album on a very somber but chilling note. And I think for that track alone almost, the album is worth hearing. I'm going to give it a buy it because I love the ambition here. She's going for something that maybe she doesn't quite attain, but I think in terms of an artist who has an incredible amount of ambition and, and a great voice and a way of presenting her music in a sonically different and interesting way, I think she's head and shoulders above a lot of those names that you mentioned earlier as, as reference points. You mean Lorena McKennett and yeah. Mary Timoney? I love them both, but I'm just a sucker for uh, witchy, gothic, pagan you know, <laughs> mood music, man. Yeah. I just love that stuff, especially when it's done this well. In order to love this album, you have to overcome a fear of the auto harp uh, as well as grand piano. This is not going to be everybody's cup of tea, and I think that is exactly what is appealing about it. Yeah. You have to kind of like that dark magic spelled M-A-G-I-C-K, right? Uh, and I do. I love it. It's a buy it as well. That party last night was awfully crazy. I wish we taped it. I danced my face off and had this one girl completely naked. Drink my drink and smoke my... But my good friends is all I need. Pass out of three. Wake up at ten. Go out to eat. Then do it again. Man, I wanna I go to college, college for the rest of my life. Sip Bankers Club and drink Miller Lite. On Thirsty Thursday and Tuesday night ice. And now I can get pizza a dollar a slice. So fill up my cup. That is the song called I Love College from Asher Roth from his new album, Asleep in the Bread Isle, the debut from Asher Roth. A 23-year-old product of a far, far suburb of Philadelphia. Grew up in Pennsylvania. He did go to college, in fact. Uh, spent a few years at uh, Westchester University. Found out it wasn't for him. Ended up in Atlanta and uh, started making some demos that caused quite a stir. First of all, on his MySpace page, did some auditioning for Jay-Z. Apparently uh, impressed the heck out of Jay-Z. Mm -hmm. Got the thumbs up from uh, Outkast's Andre 3000. Put out a very well-received 2008 mixtape that was overseen by DJ Drama, the king of the mixtapes, uh, called The Greenhouse Effect. So basically, the scene was laid here for Asher Roth to become the next big MC in hip-hop. Oh, by the way, did I mention that he's white? 
that is a big part of this. We, you know, you don't want to play the race card here, but in Asher Roth's case, it's undeniable. Well, Asher's playing it, Greg. I mean, he he's called it asleep in the bread aisle because he's talking about white bread, and he loves to have his picture taken holding slices of Wonder Bread. Exactly. And in fact, the song that is getting the most discussion from this record is one in which he references another white MC who rose to incredible popularity in recent years, Eminem, in the song that we're going to play next. As I Am from the new Asher Roth record, Asleep in the Bread Aisle, on Sound Opinions. I was in seventh grade when I heard the Slim Shady LP. Yeah, my mom brought it down when I was ironing. Irony. Getting out the wrinkles, just a little kid in middle school. Sink my teeth in anything to think I'm cool. Riding the bus, I feel the rush from I still don't give a Yeah, I wish I could agree, but I've already had enough. I've already given up from playing the same game. Every interview, feel like I'm saying the same thing. Like, and was great. Yeah, he paved the way for me. He was inspiration for everybody from A to Z. But they keep relating me. I can't get away, chasing me. I hear it all day long. And now the masses think that Asher wants to be a Marshall Mathers. They say Asher's not a rapper, not his ass is just an actor. Cause we have the same complexion and similar voice inflection. It's easy to see the pieces and the reach for that connection. Every minute, each hour of every day. I'm constantly on defense, defending my own name. Explaining we're not the same. Not much that I can say, except I'm sick of it. Critics have only sparked up a flame. It's on. That is As I Am from Asleep in the Bread Isle, the debut album by Asher Roth. That is going to, of course, be the easy comparison every critic throws at Asher Roth, that he's a wannabe Marshall Mathers. The delivery is sort of similar, but I think there are some significant differences, Greg. For one thing, I've always had a serious problem with Eminem, with his music, his lyrics being rife with misogyny and homophobia. Asher is not rapping about anything like that. He's rapping about what he knows, trying to be cool while cruising the strip malls in his mom's Ford Taurus, <laughs> trying to hit on beautiful young co-eds, all of whom he wishes were named Ashley, and live out some penthouse forum fantasy. Mm-hmm. But he knows that, in fact, the night's going to end on the couch in front of TV with a bag of Cheetos. <laughs> the guy's being honest, and he's very funny while he does it. I think if there's a comparison to other white MCs in hip-hop, it is the Beastie Boys of that uh, frat party, Hmm. fight for your right to party era, and the streets, who was rapping about life on the hard knock streets of London. But you you put those two guys together and and put them in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia, and you have Asher Roth, who has a secret weapon in the form of most of these tracks being produced by a newcomer named Oren Yole, who is bringing a sort of indie rock fuzziness and and melodicism uh, to the grooves that is just, uh, it's wonderful. You know, I, I think this is a on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, uh, a real buy it debut. You know, I hate to say it, but uh, if this guy wasn't white, no one would care. I mean, the fact oh, that's that, not true. Yeah, I, I think this is a this is a mediocre MC at best. You mentioned the Beastie Boys and Mike Skinner of the Streets. I think they are far superior MCs to this guy. 
you know, chug, chug, chug. That's the big hook from uh, I Love College. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're talking about a fraternity <laughs> rapper here, you know. I mean, he's perfect for those. He reminds me of one of those flings a girl might have at spring break. You know, kind of fun for three or four days, and then you discard. I mean, <laughs> I really don't want to spend my life with this guy, much less another week with him. That's what this guy reminds oh, me of. Oh, the guy's Adam Sandler. There's no doubt about He's it. He's weak. sort of base and vulgar, but but you know, when when he drops the guard and stops talking about marijuana and how cool it is, and that's been done too much, right? Yeah. You know, it, you are getting a glimpse of a kid from the suburbs who's who's talking about being a kid from the suburbs. Yeah, he's talking about how ordinary he is, and I agree. He's very ordinary, <laughs> very ordinary. This is a guy no one's going to be talking about a year from now, and if they are, I feel sorry for him. This is a trash record all the way. A big split there, a buy it on Asher Roth from me, a trash it from Mr. Cott, who I will note has been out of college for a lot longer than me. <laughs> what is on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we have a fine artist named Jill Sobuel, who's got a terrific record out and did it in a very unique way. She got her fans to pay for it. We're going to talk to her about it, and she's going to play some songs from it. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, is Tori Southside Malatia, a man who, like us, thinks every day is Record Store Day. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. Come on, Anna. Answer your phone, answer your phone, pick up the receiver, I know that you're at home. New messages. Hey fellas, this is West in Los Angeles. I just wanted to comment on your story about the Beatles catalog being remastered. As far as Jim's comments go, I agree that this is very well uh, probably the death throes of the recording industry is, I can say for myself, that after the release of the Neil Young Archives box set, if it comes out, the Beatles CDs will very likely be the last CDs I ever buy. But as far as Greg's comments, while I agree that it's probably a very cynical move to uh, re-release this product again, let's keep in mind, put a little perspective on the matter, there are several artists whose catalogs have been remastered or at least re-released with a handful of bonus tracks Twice, three times, the first two Elvis Costello albums have been released on CD in America five times. In comparison, the Beatles catalog being remastered once in 22 years seems relatively benign. That's about it. Keep up the good work. Hey guys, Nick from Ithaca, New York. I'm calling because I just listened to your show about lyrics and rock music, and I want to comment on my favorite pop lyricist of all time. That would be uh, Travis Morrison of the late, great DC band, The Dismemberment Plan. In particular, I want to mention their 1997 song, uh, The Ice of Boston. Essentially, in the song, Morrison describes following his ex-girlfriend to Boston, where he spends New Year's Eve alone, uh, you know, drinking champagne, pouring it over his head, talking to his mom on the phone. And it's hilarious, but also tremendously heartbreaking, a quality that holds, I think, for a lot of the dismemberment plans catalog, thanks mainly to Travis Morrison's lucid but wonderfully poignant storytelling. So, uh, brilliant lyrics from one of the great forgotten bands of my generation. Thanks, and I love the show. Hey, the ice of Boston is muddy.
Jim and Greg. This is Dominic calling from Brooklyn, New York. Wanted to comment about your show about uh, poetic and uh, lyricists out there who, uh, you know, over the years have been influential. I, I you know, loved all your picks, and uh, I have to say, you know, I know uh, Jim may not like this, but Greg, I'm sure you'll appreciate it. Tom Waits. Got to talk about Tom Waits in my mind. He's had so many clever and interesting lyrics over the years. Uh, but one of the ones that's been kicking around in my mind recently, and I think is most poetic for what's going on right now, is uh, one from his uh, record in 1993, uh, The Black Rider. He said, there's a lot, of this, a lot of things in this world you're going to have no use for. When you get blue and you've lost all your dreams, there's nothing like a campfire and a can of beans. And when you get blue and you've lost all your dreams, there's nothing like a campfire I love that, and I think it resonates quite well with what's going on these days, you know, uh, at least for me anyway. Thanks, as always. Keep up the great work, and I love the show. Hey, guys, this is Andy from Chicago. I appreciated your, uh, your show this week on literary and poetic influences on music. But you left out Jack Bruce and Pete Brown, the songwriting team that wrote so many great songs for the Cream. I mean, you take a look at the lyrics of, uh, of White Room, Silver Horses, Run Down Moonbeams, In Your Dark Eyes, Dawn Light Smiles on Your Leaving My Contentment. Take care, guys. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.